Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Talladega, Alabama. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples in Talladega and around the world. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. O God, our help in ages past, how keenly aware we are We need your help now. No one is more aware of my insufficiencies than me. So help me and help us as we walk through this passage. Help us to be clear in our understanding. Help us to be careful in the way that we say things. Far above all else, help us to be faithful to what your word says and instructs and makes clear. As we walk through what is admittedly a difficult passage, give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. and Give us hearts to obey. We pray in Christ's name. Be seated. When I was growing up, they told me God's wrath would come. Look at the world around you, they said. God's wrath is coming. Look at what your wicked, evil generation is doing. It is even worse than the generation before. God's wrath is coming. Watch the news, they said. God's wrath is coming. When we think of God's wrath, we most often think of God's active wrath. 
We think of the day when he will pour out fire upon the earth. We think of the day when all eternity of eternal fire and wrathful judgment will be ushered in. But sometimes we neglect to understand the reality of what is referred to in this passage and what we might call God's passive wrath. We fail to recognize oftentimes that God's passive wrath can be just as terrible as his active wrath. This passage explains that truth for us, and it does so by explaining what it looks like when God extends his wrath precisely by giving a people or a culture or a society over to their own idolatry and to its natural sinful progression. The central recurring phrase in this passage, as you will see it, it occurs almost in what we might call three movements, is God gave them up. It marks the beginning of all three movements, all three sections in this one passage that we have read. It comes from a Greek phrase meaning to deliver up that is used 119 times in the New Testament in various ways. Paul uses it three times in Romans 1 and again three more times in Romans 4.25, 6.17 and 8.32. We'll talk about 8.32 toward the end of our time together this morning. Introduced by each of the repetitions of this phrase in the passage is the result, another result with each movement, of exchanging God's truth for a lie. Just like we saw in the previous passage a couple of weeks ago, all of these wrathful results come as a result of the exchange of God's truth in His Word and in His character for the lies of idolatry, the lies of the world, And the lies of our own flesh. The picture that is painted for us in this passage as the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is of God lifting or removing his restraining hand. And rather than the picture that we often imagine in our minds of God's wrath where God's hand is pressed down, here the picture is of God's hand in wrath being lifted away. Lifted away to allow our sin to carry on its terrible, natural progression as it takes hold of us and the culture around us. I want us to see this morning what that progression looks like and what it stems from as both are repeated throughout the passage. I also want us to see and to take an honest look at the reality that our culture is fully entrenched in it and what we need to do now. I want you to see that in many ways, contrary to what you may have heard for many years now, our culture is not, as we might say, teetering on the edge, waiting for God's wrathful hand to fall at any moment. We've seemed to talk like that in in years past. We seem to talk like that as if the worse our culture gets, the closer we are to wrath. The sad reality I want you to see this morning is that the further down this road our culture goes, the more deeply we are already engulfed in that wrath, as as it is described here. We'll do that by examining the progression in those three exchanges given to us in the text. If you're taking notes, we've got three exchanges, beginning with, number one, exchanging purity for impurity. Exchanging purity for impurity. Look first again at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And we need to understand what the therefore points back to. We'll talk more about this in just a moment, but look back all the way to verse 18 and remember the progression. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the section began with us understanding that we're going to talk about wrath. This passage is going to talk about wrath and what it comes for. And so we have already seen, and we're going to read again in just a second, what that wrath comes for. This passage that we have just read and where we focus our attention today is what that wrath looks like. It's, we're no longer talking about what God's wrath is coming for. We're talking about, in the passage that we have just read, the passage we're studying, verses 24 through 32, we're talking now about what wrath looks like. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. That wrath is coming because God has, you should have known better. God has shown you the truth. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If you want to know more about this, of course, you can go back and watch previous sermons, study through your notes if you were here. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's the sin? It's idolatry. Why are they guilty? Because they should have known better. So what wrath is coming? Verse 24, beginning with the word, therefore, tells us this is God's wrath. It begins with impurity. Quite simply, impurity, you already know this, is the opposite of purity. It is the opposite of keeping oneself unstained by the world in obedience to God. It is disobedience to God in which we are stained by the sins of the world around us as we take part in them. Most likely what is in view here by the tone and subject matter of the duration of the passage is specifically sexual impurity, although a variety of impurity may be in view. Recognize this because the next phrase that describes that impurity is the dishonoring of their bodies. Again, what is described here is physical, likely sexual sin. It refers to not treating our bodies with the honor they deserve, dishonoring of your body. People are created in the image of God. But in sin, we sometimes treat our own bodies and the bodies of others as far less. We treat them like objects for our pleasure. We treat ourselves and even we treat other people as objects. We exploit, we abuse, we degrade. This is played out in sins of adultery, pornography, sex trafficking, rape, and the list goes on. The dishonoring of their bodies, the treating of one's body like an object to be used for our fleshly desires. This is impurity. It is staining ourselves with the sins of the world rather than obedience to God because God gave us sex as a good thing. But here we see that we exchange his truth for lies. What our flesh tells us will be good is not good. And when we commit sexual impurity, we pervert what is good, we use it for evil, and we expect it to turn out so often for good, when it does precisely the opposite. But what if I told you that as many times as you have heard, as I heard, again, growing up, 
Just as much as we often heard, if you keep going down this road, God's wrath is coming. If our culture, if America keeps going down this road, God's wrath is coming. What if I told you that this impurity is not the thing for which his wrath is coming? It is the wrath. The opening phrase of verse 24 is, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. It is critical to note for you now, as well as for the duration of the passage, that the main point of this entire passage is that it is your exchange of what God has said for what your flesh lies to tell you. It is that exchange. It is believing the lusts of your flesh over the truth of God that God is judging you for. And the thing he judges you with is giving you up to the lusts of your flesh and that sexual impurity. Sexual impurity, then, is not the thing for which God judges, but the thing with which God judges. It is the wrath he pours out. That's the opposite of what we generally assume. But the reason this is so important is because it helps us understand the reality that we are in far worse shape than we often give ourselves credit for. Is God dishonored and displeased by sexual sin? Absolutely. But is that the thing for which he is judging us? I would argue that in accordance with this passage, it is the thing that dishonors him with which he is judging us. The root sin runs far deeper, and we have already committed it in our idolatry. Impurity is the natural progression from exchanging the truth of God for a lie, which those previous passages talk about. We trade purity and honor of the imago dei, the image of God in human beings, for impurity, for the lusts of the flesh, and for the dishonoring of our bodies. We trade those things. And as soon as we trade those things, we act on them. Verse 25. Again, this verse begins with a telling word. It begins with the word because. What verse 25 talks about now is the root sin. In case we missed it in the first few verses, it's plainly spelled out for us in verse 25 what the root sin is, the reason for that wrath, the reason for impurity, the reason for sexual sin, the reason that sexual sin has so gripped our culture because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Having been guilty of this idolatrous exchange, we're told that now God gave them exactly what they wanted. There are times when God's wrath comes by his giving us what we said we wanted and allowing us to suffer the consequences. There are times when that wrath comes by God simply allowing our depravity to go unchecked and unhindered. It is, after all, only grace that spares cultures for seasons, at least for a while, from the consequences of their own wickedness. But when a culture, a people, have wholesale rejected God for idols and traded his truth for lies, there are times when, in his wrath, God lets us have what we kept demanding. And that restraining hand is lifted. For generations, our culture has cried out for sexual liberation. Don't give us all those old rules. We will decide what is good. And can I tell you, as someone born 
I know some of you like to forget this. As someone born in 1988, it didn't start with my generation. The cries for sexual liberty began long before my generation and long before my parents' generation and long before my grandparents' generation, but somewhere down the line they began and they only got worse. And God's wrath is not coming because we demand it. God's wrath was to say, if you want to exchange what I have said for what you demand, I'll let you have it. Take it. And the place in which we find ourselves now, shaking our heads, scarcely even able to watch the evening news, is exactly what we get when God lets us have what we asked for. Rather than freedom and ecstasy of self-determination and sexual liberation, we find ourselves plunged into the horrors of the dark depths of sinfulness. And all along, God, as as it were, is seated upon his throne saying, that's what you want, you can have it. The word exchanged is used twice in the passage to describe for us that root sin. It is a repeated theme that carries us back to verse 23, and again, the root of the problem. The root sin is exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And God's lifting his restraining hand comes as the wrathful punishment for that exchange already described in verse 23. We could have and should have regarded God as creator, as God, as the one who creating all things, is also the one who should be allowed to tell us how those things should be used and how those things which he created will be for our good and his glory. But instead... Instead of regarding the Creator as supreme and listening to Him, we regarded our flesh as supreme. We said our flesh, made from dirt, is the one in charge. And rather than serving the one who formed us out of the dust of the ground, we serve the cravings of our dustful self. It is idolatry that comes first. It is saying, I will have my way. Instead of listening to what God has said. And when we do, there are times when God simply lifts his restraining hand and says, My wrath is that you shall have all that you say you want. When we idolize the flesh over God, we have committed this sin for which God gives us up in that natural progression. The question we have to ask ourselves, the rather unpleasant question, brothers and sisters, is how much has the church and how much have we as Christians been to blame for that root sin? How have we, who above all others should have known better, preferred our flesh over the one who created it and, 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 who desi- and, and how often have we desired our flesh over his commands in obedience to them? How often do we see this very same root sin in our own lives? We crave the flesh. We crave what we want over what God demands and what God desires and what will most honor and glorify Him. You see, it's easy to point the the, the finger, isn't it? 
It's easy to watch the news and look at the culture and and read the paper and, and, and look at Facebook and shake our heads and say, oh, what a desperately wicked culture in which we live. But God would have us to look at our own hearts and say, you were idolatrous first. I told you what you were to do. And you decided on your way instead. I told you the things which you were to obey. And you decided you would have things your own way. I told you the things which you must believe. And I told you the way that you were to act. And I told you the way which, in which you were to shine the light of the truth of the gospel in the world. But you said, no thanks, we'll have things our way instead. God is long-suffering. And in his patience with us, he has, I believe, suffered with our idolatry for generations. But there comes a time when he lets us have exactly what we've been telling him we wanted. Secondly, we find the exchange of God's perfect design for dishonorable passions. Exchanging God's perfect design for dishonorable passions. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Again, we find another exchange and another God gave them up. We find yet another sinful act identified not as the thing which brings God's judgment, but that which is God's judgment. Here in the matter of homosexual sin, specifically, And especially, we have often had our understanding backward. Homosexuality is not the sin for which God may one day judge a culture. It is the judgment for our long ago exchange of the truth. Brothers and sisters, there is much to say here, but this is not a topical sermon on the issue of homosexuality. We're going to walk through this section And I hope that we will learn some very important truths about homosexuality. But we we will not be exhaustive. And I wish in some ways that we could be. But we simply need to walk through what this passage says. But this passage does offer us some of the reasons, a few at least, though the list is not exhaustive, why homosexuality is sinful. And though our list is not exhaustive, I do want us to understand these very, very carefully. Because here's the other trend I have seen in the modern church. In 2021, you are going to have to answer these kinds of questions more than ever. Why do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? And oftentimes that question is going to be much more pointed. Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Who are you to tell me that I can't love whom I love? These are the kinds of questions you're going to have to answer. And can I tell you that oftentimes we have dropped the ball. And our best explanation for why we think homosexuality is wrong and why we think homosexuality is a sin is either I just wasn't raised that way or it makes me feel icky to talk about. Neither one of those is sufficient reason for you to believe it is sinful. There are true and biblical reasons, which we will examine a few of this morning, for which Homosexuality is indeed sinful against God. But you're simply not having been brought up that way and feeling like it's icky to talk about are not sufficient reasons. You need to be better equipped. So what are those reasons? We begin with a description of dishonorable passions. 
This is the way the Bible talks about homosexuality. A dishonorable passion. In other words, it does not honor God. We have also seen from the first section that it dishonors our bodies. It is using sex in a way that it was not intended to be used, and thereby dishonoring the imago dei in us. It is also dishonoring to God. It regards the flesh and pursues lust rather than regarding God and pursuing obedience to what he has said. This is the plain meaning of the text and other texts of Scripture that clearly name homosexuality as a sin. We're not allowed to talk like this. But keep in mind that this is not your pastor's opinion. This is what the Word of God says. It is a dishonorable passion. Instead of honoring God and pursuing His glory, we pursue that which dishonors Him and elevates the desires of our own flesh, honoring ourselves and our lusts more than we honor God and what He commands. We dishonor God, especially when we take that which He gave us as a living illustration of the union between Christ and His church, namely the union in marriage of a man and a woman together, God gave us that as a good and honorable gift to display the gospel to the world around us and we use it instead to gratify our fleshly desires. We dishonor him when we do this. The natural progression that is given to us in this passage as a whole is that a culture that pursues lust will soon arrive at dishonorable passions within that lust as the natural result and progression of those sinful lusts. You see, the more you give in to the flesh, the more you are apt to give in to the flesh. Again, you're not supposed to say this, but it is a slippery slope. And again, in his wrath, we find God letting us have what we said we wanted. Give us sexual liberation. Stop giving us so many rules. Let us make the rules. Let us decide what is right. Let us decide what we want. And God says, all right. Your dishonorable passions come as the result of your dishonoring your bodies. I also need to tell you at this point that when we talk about homosexual sin as a dishonorable passion, you need to recognize that as much as your culture would balk at that statement, your culture is lying to you. If you are here this morning and you struggle with same-sex attraction as a sin, your culture is lying to you when it tells you that By pursuing that, you will finally be fulfilled. The reason you aren't fulfilled in that desire is not because no one affirms your homosexuality. The reason that you are not fulfilled is not that you aren't or weren't legally permitted to be married, and so on and so on and so on. The reason you are not fulfilled is because you have have not been living in accordance with God's good and perfect design. That which is for his glory is also for your good. Have you noticed that the more society affirms and the more legal protections are provided, the more and more you still find yourself unfulfilled? Because the truth is that the desires of the flesh will never fulfill you. Only living in accordance with God's design can fulfill you. And it does. You are exchanging the truth of God's good design for a lie. The lies of the flesh, the lies of the devil, the lies of the world that tell you you will finally find fulfillment if you will just get everyone around you to affirm and 
lean in to that same-sex attraction. Friend, you were created to glorify God and to honor Him. So dishonoring Him can never fulfill you. The reason you still feel empty and unfulfilled is that that which you are running after can never satisfy. Look at verse 27. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We find here another reason why homosexuality is sinful. It is giving up natural relations. Now again, were the world to hear this, it would cringe. Were we on Facebook Live right now, we wouldn't be anymore. wording here describes forsaking God's good and perfect design in creation for that which is, and we won't mince words here, a perversion of his good design. In Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus recounts God's ordaining the gift of marriage in the beginning. He, that's Jesus, answered, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I read that as an almost benediction of sorts at most of the weddings that I do. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Or sometimes I read it in the old King James. What God, therefore, hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And oftentimes what we mean by that is divorce. God puts you together, don't separate. But the weightiness of this command has far-reaching applications. What God has ordained and designed, let no man degrade, nor pervert, nor separate. You see, homosexuality is not only dishonorable to God, it is contrary to nature. That, it is, that is, it is contrary to God's good and perfect design. We have used, and, and, and we won't use, but we have used in the past silly illustrations of all of my goofiness of using things contrary to their design, contrary to the way they have been made and their intended purpose. I think we're dealing with a little bit too serious a topic to give you any specifics this morning. But you know that when you use something contrary to its design, it doesn't go well. You never arrive at satisfaction. Homosexual sin is taking the good gift of sex which God has given and ordained between a man and a woman, for a variety of good, good reasons. Twisting it to fulfill the lusts of our flesh. Consider the beginning of this section, how serious it is to defy God's created order. It is, after all, in this section that we have read, that God uses His created order to reveal His very character to us. 
And there in his ordaining of marriage between a man and a woman, he chose to reveal the goodness of his love for us, that Christ would be united with his church, giving his life for his church, that his church may be joined to him. And when we pervert marriage, we are distorting the very way that God chose to reveal the character and love of his son for his people. I also want you to note another key phrase that is important because you will hear this argument. I want you to notice they were consumed with passion for one another. I think this is an important phrase to note because some have said at this point that Paul only refers to pedophilia or to homosexual rape. There is this popular misconception that what Paul is really talking about was these two common practices in first century Rome where there would either be these these cases of homosexual rape, a man uh, exerting his power over another, or uh, sex trafficking in little boys and and practicing pedophilia. But, But when we're talking about 2021 America and we're talking about two consenting adults in a homosexual relationship, that's different and therefore it's permittable. Paul must be talking about something else. But that's not, that's not the language that's used here. The language that's used here is very, very clear. Passion for one another is mutual language. It is a dangerous thing to begin to make these sorts of twisting assertions where we would say, no, 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 Paul's not talking about homosexuality in the sense that we mean it today. You see, homosexuality was different back then. And so he's not really condemning what we're doing now. He was just just talking about something different back then. It was really, really bad back then. But it's two consenting adults now, and so it's okay. Passion for one another. That's consensual, dual language. It is relational language. Paul is not referring to something any different than homosexual relationships and homosexual sexual acts. It's it's of mutual lust for one another. It's not predatory language that's used here. That, That excuse falls short. And, as we're going to talk about Genesis 3 in a moment... It sounds awfully familiar to the question a serpent once asked in the garden. Did God really say? Thirdly, we find that these acts are shameless. Again, this just feels like an insult. If you read this passage in a crowded room in in modern day America, you would get something thrown at you rather quickly. But think about what the word shameless means. It means there is no repentance There is no shame. There is no remorse. It is willful, spiteful rebellion against God, against his commands, and against his good design. Now, I I need to tell you something here, because we're going to talk about in a few moments the ways in which homosexual sin is at its root so much like every other sin. But here's where we have to tell you it is decidedly different. It is different in that it is a shameless rebellion. It is a shameless rebellion. And what we mean by that is that it is deciding that I can live this lifestyle contrary to the design of God without remorse or repentance. And then, in fact, God ought to be pleased with it because I can find a way to explain it. No repentance, no shame, no remorse. Perhaps an explanation 
Or perhaps simply a demand that God himself get with the times. Shamelessness, again, is not given as an insult. It's given as a warning. To live in open homosexual relationships are shameless in that they are unrepentant. It is a refusal to regard God's good design. Lastly, we find that they receive the due penalty for their error. We could speculate, and many commentators do and have done, what exactly is meant by the due penalty for their error. But one thing that is absolutely clear here is that we are accountable for God, to God for this kind of rebellion against him. Sometimes when his wrath comes, he gives us the natural consequences of the lust that we pursue. Sometimes that's guilt. Sometimes that's shame. Sometimes that's his own judgment. Sometimes it's confusion within our own minds. Sometimes it's psychological scars. But oftentimes by pursuing the lusts of our own flesh instead of pursuing purity before him, his judgment and wrath is to give us the natural consequences of what we have done. The one who is most harmed then by your rebellion against God's design is us. It's you. Unnatural unions, as they are described here, cannot bear children. They create psychological and emotional distress, as does all sexual sin. And above all, they cannot display the gospel, the love of Christ for his church. Again, your culture has lied to you. You are not most harmed by God's commands. We talk about needing to to, to shelter ourselves from these kinds of commands. These, These kinds of commands are too harsh. You have to give a trigger warning before you read a passage like this because we might be harmed by God's commands. But God in His Word here says, you are not most harmed by my commands. You are most harmed by your disobedience to my commands. Because my commands are good and right. And inasmuch as they are for my glory, they are also for your good. If you would but follow them, they would be for your good. You are harming yourself with your disobedience. So why is homosexuality wrong? We've talked about several reasons already, but let this one sink in for a moment. That it is for the same reason your adulterous relationship is wrong. It is sin in the same way that sex outside of marriage is wrong. It is sin in the same way that sex before marriage is wrong. It is sin in the same way that your habit of pornography is wrong. It is sin in the same way that your greed, your selfish ambition, your lying tongue, your gossip are all wrong. Because at the root, you have exchanged what God truthfully said is good for the lie of that which your flesh has said is good. You have looked at the fruit of the tree and seen that it was pleasing to the eye, good for food, and desirable to make you wise. And despite God's warnings to the contrary, you took it and ate it. You have said in your own heart, I know God says this is good and right, but I say this is good and right. I know God says this is not for your good, but I say it is for my good, and so I will have it. You have committed a terrible exchange. Thirdly, We find the exchange of acknowledging God for a debased mind. 
exchanging, acknowledging God for a debased mind. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Debased mind is that third progression of this sinful descent. It is the third progression of what happens when God simply lifts his hand and says, if you want to trade me for idols, I'll let you have dishonoring your bodies. You watch what happens. Very quickly will follow dishonorable passions. And very soon after that will come a debased mind. We don't use this phrase often, but the phrase debased mind literally means a mind that does not pass the test. And so it is not fit for use. It's a metallurgical term. Is this metal good? Does it pass the test? Can it be used? A mind that is debased is a mind that is not fit to reason and understand the world. It has a depraved worldview and understanding. Here the point is that God gives a people, a culture, a society over to their own depraved thinking because they have rejected him and they have rejected his design and the way that things are to work so he will let them do things their own way. That's what they said they wanted, that's what they may have. A depraved mind can no longer understand the difference between right and wrong, so everything is turned on its head. They cannot understand the difference between right and wrong so much so that the extent to which that happens is that what is right, it calls wrong, and what is wrong, it calls right. I think we can say with all clarity and absolute assuredness that American culture has fully settled into the third phase Because like this passage, there is no end to the examples that we could give to illustrate this fact. There are plenty given in the text. We don't have to give many more. Verses 29 through 31, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. It's everywhere. You can't measure how much unrighteousness is in this kind of culture. Evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You don't think you're haters of God? America has invented what are called angry atheists. They hate God and want him dead. You don't think we're haughty? We live in the selfie generation. You or your children or your grandchildren, maybe even you, have more pictures of yourself on your phone than anyone else. We are inventors of evil. We look for ways to be evil. Every day you think it couldn't go any further, the world defies you to show you just how far it can go. You don't think we're heartless? How much compassion have you seen between human beings? We're ruthless. Think about the ways people talk to each other now. God in his grace restrains the wickedness of the human heart. But when he lifts that restraining hand, there is no end to the horrors a culture will endure. There is no end to the horrors a culture will pursue with all that they are and all that they have. 
A debased mind gives way to all manner of unrighteousness. Where can it stop? Once we have set ourselves to rebelling against God and have made up our minds that our way is better than His way, that our flesh is more desirable than He is, that our lusts are preferable to His design, where does it stop? But look now at verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God has made it plain what is righteousness and what is sin. He has told us plainly in his word, though they know God's decree. You know better. God has decreed that the just just punishment for sin is death. We read it in his word. We know it by our very consciences, as we found earlier in the passage, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This, This decree is undeniable. The wages of sin is death. You know it in your conscience when your conscience is seared by the reality that there is a God and you have disobeyed him. And you know it when he spells this out plainly in his word. But instead of obeying, they not only do them, a debased mind does all of these things, but they also give approval to those who practice them. Debased mind sanctions all of these things. What does that look like? You already know. Parades to celebrate debauchery. A month given to acclaim that which perverts God's good design. The murder of babies defended as a human right. Only a debased mind can turn a culture so opposite the rule, law, and design of God. It is a debased mind, as we read the news story a couple of weeks ago, that can watch a woman be raped on a subway car and do nothing. It is a debased mind that can create the industry that has become known as sex trafficking and grow it every year. By the way, do you know where the world's capital for sex trafficking is, according to the last data? It's I-20 between Birmingham and Atlanta. Our backyard. It is a debased mind that sees what was once regarded as gender confusion, a cry for help, instead as something worth celebrating. It is a debased mind that calls on those who insist on God's design, those who should be ignored or punished or silenced. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the reality and the point and the thrust of this entire passage. All of this comes as a consequence, a terrible, wrathful consequence of that original exchange from the previous passage, exchanging God for an idol. You can see our culture firmly in step three of this progression, a debased mind. But look quickly Don't spend too long with fingers pointed and eyes darting at the culture around you. Look quickly to your own heart because it is there that the same root of idolatry lies often dormant and yet often fully in control. That idolatry will lead you only to lust, only to dishonorable passions and only to a debased mind. 
how often has our idolatry taken charge? Yes, even in the church. We have idolized ourselves. We have idolized our preferences. We have idolized our comforts. We have idolized our own lusts of our own flesh when we have repeatedly let things slide in our own lives and made excuses for our sins rather than allowing ourselves to be held accountable or holding one another accountable for those things. And, brothers and sisters, as we regard these matters, and let me state very, very clearly that often we have been guilty of idolizing cultural approval. We would rather not say what God's Word says because we don't want to get in trouble with the culture. And when we do that, we exchange the truth for a lie and say that cultural approval is better than obedience to God. We should lament the sins of our culture, yes. But we should also confess our part in our own idolatry. Don't forget that when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives a similar list in 1 Corinthians 6, he follows it very quickly in verse 11 with these words, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Why don't you have a debased mind? Why haven't you given way to dishonorable passions? Why do you not dishonor your body? It is not because you are better. It is because you are saved from it. It is because you have been washed clean by blood and saved by grace alone. It is because there is a good Savior who reached down to you in the depths of your sin and pulled you up to life. Your righteousness is not something worth boasting over because it is not righteousness of your own. It is a righteousness given to you as a free gift. Such were some of you. You have the same sin of idolatry in you. Yet you were washed. Impurity, Dishonorable passions and a debased mind all stem from that idolatry, from our exchanging the glory of the invisible God for, just as Casey said a couple of weeks ago, a trinket. But as we close, can I turn your attention to one other use of the term exchange in Romans? Go just a little to the right to a passage we'll get to eventually, Romans 8, 32. There we find the same word. In the Romans 1 passage, it's, ex- it's translated exchange. Here it's translated a little differently, but the words will sound familiar even in translation. Romans 8.32. He, that's God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, in your sin, you have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You have exchanged obedience for the dishonoring of your body. You have exchanged God's good design for your dishonorable passions, and you have exchanged the worship of the Creator, the idolatry of yourself. God, being rich in mercy, exchanged his son for you. And 
there on a cross. He sent him as your substitute. And Jesus himself was nailed to a cross in your place. Your sins placed upon him in grace and God's wrath poured out upon him in absolute divine mercy as your substitute. So that, friend, no matter where you find yourself along this path, whether you this morning are dishonoring your body through a variety of sins, maybe even sexual sin, whether you have given yourself over to dishonorable passions or whether you are fully entrenched in a debased mind, there is good news that you may yet be washed as I was. Washed clean by blood. The blood of a Savior who took your place as he took mine and gave his life for your sins as he gave his life for mine. That we might be saved. God has made a way for you to be saved even from your idolatry and spared from his terrible wrath by giving his son in our place. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in many ways, these are hard words. our minds, oftentimes far more shaped by our culture than we want to admit. These are hard words to hear. Perhaps they are hardest to hear because we find ourselves reflected perfectly in them. We see our culture in these words. We see the idolatry of our own hearts in these words. We praise you that in Christ you have made a way for us to be saved. We acknowledge that we are fully deserving of your absolute wrath, passive and active. We praise you because you poured out that wrath on your son so that we who would put our hope and trust and faith in him could be saved. Father, would you make the saints, under the sound of my voice, thankful? And those still yet in their sin, would you open their eyes to see the goodness of this gospel? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. This altar is available for you. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to cry out to the Savior to save you from your idolatry wherever you find yourself. Cry out to Him. Perhaps you're here this morning, Christian, and you simply want to come and thank Him for saving you. Perhaps, Christian, church, you are here and you you simply want to come and pray for our culture and pray that we would be used to advance this good news of a Savior who can redeem us You want to come and and pray for our culture. Maybe you want to pray for an individual who's been laid on your heart and on your mind who is still deeply entrenched in sin and in need of a Savior to plead on their behalf that God would save them by His grace. Whatever Whatever need God is laying in your heart, whatever burden this morning, 
as we stand together and sing. Let me challenge you now to come. Your grace that leads the sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by name. By grace I am redeemed, by grace I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ, my Lord. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my you hear now this benediction from God's word. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings.